Not only does God not say that size and spiritual power go together, but he even reverses this, especially in the teaching of Jesus, and tells us to be deliberately careful not to choose a place too big for us. We all tend to emphasize big works and big places, but all such emphasis is of the flesh. To think in such terms is simply to hearken back to the old, unconverted, egoist, self-centered me. This attitude taken from the world is more dangerous to the Christian than fleshly amusement or practice. So this was written about 45 years ago or so. What was true then is certainly as true, perhaps more true now. And it wasn't, it's not just true now, it wasn't just true then, it's always been true. And it goes something like this. You remember ever since the fall when Adam and Eve know that something is wrong with them. They're looking for some way to feel okay, to cover their insufficiency. And so they start with leaves. God gives them animal skins. But all of us have that sense of personal deficiency. We're not who we want to be. We're not who we think we should be. And we try and find ways. This is natural. People are going to do it one way or another. We try and find ways to find personal significance or personal meaning or fig leaves that are adequate to cover up my sense of shame or sin, or guilt, or simply that I'm not important enough. I'm looking for a place or a way to be affirmed. And if we can't get that personally, second best is to be associated with someone or some work or some place that is. And Schaefer's spot on that it's, it's our own carnal way of trying to feel okay about ourselves in a big wide world after all. If we can't be personally significant, we'll be tied to someone or something that is. Now it is true that God does work in spectacular ways at times, big people, big things, big purposes. But generally we find that's the exception, it's not the rule. And even when God works spectacularly, it's usually after periods in which he's been working, but less spectacularly, in more simple, small, small ways, small people, small places. Now, of course, uh, Schaefer's title is No Little People, No Little Places, but but basically, the measure of the world says exactly the opposite. And so we're going to be talking about that this morning in our series, Waiting the King. What happened to my letters up there? Sorry, awe aiding the king. How did that happen? Who put this together? I've, I've looked at that and I've never seen it. We'll try and get that right for next time. Uh, anyway, going towards Christmas... You guys can tell me that, you know, next time. It's hanging out there. Uh, going towards Christmas and people will be thinking about the Incarnation one way or another, we want to bring a little intentionality to that in this series. And remember that God's overarching plan for the cosmos is and always has been that he's going to subsume everything under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The end to which everything is moving is Jesus will be King of Kings, Lord of Lords, recognized as such, in a new heaven, a new earth. And so everything that's going on in the earth is actually headed towards that end, and that's what we want to have our eyes on. The stories we're in this morning are sort of small stories, but they're connected to big plans of God, and, and I, I hope that we see a couple things. The first is that uh, whether we're thinking of our own lives or we're thinking of biblical stories, that we realize that everything that God's about is somehow connected to Christ and connected to a purpose and a plan bigger than just ourselves, just our life, just our time or place. And you'll see that in the stories this morning. 
And also this, just by way of application, and this is actually where we'll end uh, this morning, the, the stories that we look at this morning, they hinge on a characteristic of God called loyal love. And there's a Hebrew word, it gets translated various ways, mercy, loving kindness, loyal love, faithfulness, all from the same Hebrew word. But what you'll find in both of the stories we're in this morning, sort of the small stories, they both hinge on this quality of God's kind of loyal, faithful love. And guys, in a world in which it tends to be just about me, this whole thing about loyal love in little places, in little people's lives, is actually moving, is part of God moving all of history towards his eternal purposes. And that we want to make sure that our lives are characterized by the kind of loyal love you'll see in these stories. So last week when we started the series, we were in the book of Judges. Do you remember how depressing that was? depressing. Samson was the last judge in that book. You know, he's kind of an anti-judge. He's God's person, but he's just a, a failed, flawed character. And you see those last two stories about the priesthood. And one priest sells out entirely. Another priest allows his wife to be savaged to death. There's civil war. There's rape. There's murder. It, it is a terrible time. And what we said, at least in part from the end of that book, was we've come to know that the judges and the priesthood are inadequate to keep the people connected to Yahweh, to covenantal faithfulness, to loyal love in those relationships. Not only are they inadequate, but they're part of the problem. And you remember that judges wound down by saying, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And that leads us right in to the little book of Ruth. So in the waning dark days, and I love the fact that Ruth starts out this way, so you finish Judges, and all is doom and gloom, but with those, those seeds, those little bits thrown down, there's no king. That means we're looking for the coming of the king. But in the terrible dark days of the Judges, that's actually when the little story of Ruth occurs. In my mind, I tend to see it as a different time or place, but it's not. And it tells us that right from the beginning of the book. So you can read this in your own text, or you can read it on the overhead. But this is the beginning of the little four-chapter book of Ruth. And guys, for, for brevity, but as well as just depth and profoundness and, and the way it's all woven together, you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to find a story of greater profound importance in such a simple, straightforward, small setting than the book of Ruth. But it begins this way, in the days when the judges ruled, those dark days that we see in the end of Judges, there was a famine in the land. Now remember, it's Jews that are hearing this for the first time. When they hear a story about a famine in the land, who are they thinking of? They're thinking of Abraham. They're thinking of Jacob. Do you remember in those stories? And there was a famine in the land, and what did they do? Well, they took off. They went someplace. They went south, generally, to Egypt. So the Jews' ears are pricked right here. There's a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah, and do you remember those last two priests? Do you remember where their story started at? Bethlehem in Judah. The priests were leaving there. The concubine wife was from there. The priest and her husband leave from Bethlehem in Judah. Uh, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and Eli Melech means God is king, and the name of his wife was Naomi, which means pleasant. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Now, we know in the story that these, all these guys are going to die, right? Father and two sons. 
Uh, Malon means sick. And Kilion means either pining or wasting away. Dad may have been a sickly type guy, and he may have had two sons who were just like him. At least it seems that way from their names. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So they've not just left for a season. They've taken up home in Moab. I don't have a map today, but if you came out of Bethlehem and you went straight east across the Jordan and south just a little bit on the other side of the Dead Sea, you'd be in Moab there. Uh, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. This would normally not be a good thing. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So the same time that those stories were going on in the book of Judges, that's when this same story is going on too. In other words, in all the darkness of the days of the Judges, you've got the light that's going to come out of the little book of Ruth. Now, they've gone to their neighboring country. Uh, You know, Moab is related to the Jews, right, through Lot. The Moabites are the descendants of Lot. They're related to the Jews, but they were basically entirely an idolatrous group. Think of a Jew hearing this story. They've gone to Moab and they've married Moabites. What would a Jew think of about Jewish boys hooking up with Moabite women? That would bring an unsavory story to mind from Numbers 25 when Balak was un- Balaam was unable to curse the nation of Israel. He said, hey, this is what you can do. They'll have your gals hook up with those Jewish boys. They'll pull them away from Yahweh, and that's exactly what happened at Baal Peor. So when you hear a story in which Jewish boys are marrying uh, Moabite girls, this would not have sounded like a good idea. Also, the Moabites worship the god Kamosh. Now, in this image, he looks like a bull. He was also the fish god. Some images of him are like a, a fish instead. But the scriptures called the Old Testament, God called uh, Kamosh the abomination. The god Kamosh was an abomination. This is the land in which they went to live. And it was to the god Kamosh that child sacrifices were offered. So even though we know this story is going in a very bright way, it starts really bad. They leave the land of promise. That's not a good thing. They marry Moabite women. That that wouldn't be a good thing. They're in the land that worships a child sacrificing God. None of this sounds good. And then, by the way, the guys die. All of the guys die. Not a good thing. So in that land, the death of all the, the, the sons and the husband... Naomi says, there's nothing here for me. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. I've heard that the food's there. Their harvest season is coming in. I'll go back there and see what God has for me. So she tells those two daughters-in-law to head back to their households. And Orpah initially says, no, I'm going to stay with you. But she eventually capitulates. She heads back. And as you're probably aware, uh, Ruth doesn't. And this is what she says in Ruth 1. And This passage is sometimes quoted in weddings. Uh, It's interesting that two of the loveliest passages in the Bible about love have nothing to do with weddings. But they're quoted in weddings. That's where we know them from. This is one, 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter on love is the other. It has nothing to do with marriage in its context. It's about the love people have within the church for one another while they're exercising their spiritual gifts. And isn't it interesting, this is from a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law. 
that makes it even more profound, right? A daughter-in-law who now owed her mother-in-law nothing, there's no relationship there that ties them together anymore. And often it's, it's the, the strife we might feel in our family might be with our in-laws, right? Up or down, could go either way. But this is a daughter-in-law speaking to her mother-in-law. So Naomi, Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. And, and that was true, to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge or where you live, I will lodge. I will live. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Now remember, this is no small thing for her. This isn't a sentiment that's just nice in the moment. When she says, your God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is my God, she's claiming faith in Yahweh. Your God is my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Guys, this is the loyal love that we're talking about. She doesn't owe this to Naomi anymore. But the, the Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, has become her God, and the kind of loyal love you see by God, you now see through Ruth. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. Now, the story, and guys, we're just hitting the highlights of the stories for time's sake this morning. So Ruth goes into the fields to glean. You remember, she says, I went out full, Naomi, pleasant, I've come back, bitter, Mara, call me Mara, Mary means bitter, don't call me uh, Naomi anymore. But the harvest is going on, and Ruth is still a young woman, so she's going to go out and she's going to work, she's going to glean in the field. So you remember, God provided that the poor of the land would follow the harvesters in anyone's field, and they would pick up the fallen heads of grain or the individual grains that the harvesters had missed, and that's how they were provided for. So Ruth is going to go out into a field. And I love, if you read in the text, the story just says, and it just so happened that she ended up in the field of Boaz. She doesn't know these people. She doesn't, she's just looking for a field. She thinks it looks like a good field. I can go and glean there. And it just so happens that she ends up in the field of Boaz. Now, Boaz asks, who is that young woman in the field? I don't know her. And so someone tells her, well, that's Ruth. That's Naomi's daughter-in-law. Now, he knows the story about Ruth. He knows that she's lost her husband, and, she, and he knows that she has pledged loyal love or faithfulness to Naomi. So he says to her, Honey, I know you. I know your story. You stay here in my field. You walk behind my workers. You stay with my women. He feeds her lunch. He says, Basically, you stay here so nobody hurts you. You know, women were vulnerable in those days just like they are today. So he said, you stay here, we'll take care of you. He feeds her lunch, he sends her home with a bunch of food. Now Ruth gets home, and of course Naomi says, how'd it go? You know, tell me about your day, honey. And so she does, and she says, well, you know, gosh, I ended up in the field of this guy named Boaz, and he gave me all this great lunch, he sent me home with all this good stuff. And Naomi gets an idea, and she knows that there's a provision in Israel, and we, we talk about it in the terms of a kinsman redeemer. You see, part of this Leviticus, though the story here goes beyond what the Old Testament had already provided for. But Naomi says, basically, I've got a plan and this is it. You're going to ask Boaz to marry you, to act as your kinsman redeemer. And remember the thought was this, that in Israel, they really saw their, their blessing as remaining in connection with 
the land and the people of Israel. So if a man died and he didn't have a male heir to carry on his name, his wife would remarry, and that first male child would be legally his heir. Not the birth father's heir, but the former, the first husband, the dead husband's heir. And then he would become responsible for that family and for that family plot. That was the way of sustaining a man's name in Israel. And so this would sustain Elimelech's name and Malon's name and their property rights in the land of promise. So Naomi says, you're going to go, he'll harvest tonight, he'll be feeling good. It's a good time of year, the harvest is in. You go and lay at his feet, and when he wakes up, you tell him that you want him to act as your kinsman redeemer. And of course, that's what she does. And so Boaz says, great, I'll do it. If he had been married before, he's not married at this time. She's not married, and this thing looks like it will work. So he accepts the invitation. So he gets rid of another kinsman redeemer, by the way, that we won't go into. There was a relative closer than him. So he's related to Elimelech, but someone's more closely related. He says, I can't do this. It would jeopardize my inheritance or my children's inheritance. Can't do it. Boaz says he will. So this is where the story goes in chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and listen to this again. The Lord gave her conception. Do you remember with Samson, that last judge? Child of promise. His mom hadn't had any kids before him. And the angel comes and says, you're going to have a baby. God's going to provide for that baby. Well, the same thing's going on here. So uh, Ruth had been married, and she hadn't had any children. Now, we don't know if that was her physical issue or her husband's, but it's clear here that the Lord gave conception. This child was by God's doing. She bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, or Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. That's Boaz. May his name be renowned in Israel. Isn't that interesting? That prayer has been answered, right? Because we've been reading about Boaz ever since. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, which means serving. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, of course, this was written after David became king. But listen to the way the book closes. You remember we said, related to the whole series, God's purpose and plan is always to bring in God the Son, His Messiah, to save the world and to enter in and lead His eternal kingdom. So this says, as it closes, these are the generations of Perez. If you were a Jew and you heard that phrase, these are the generations of, do you know what you'd be thinking about? Because you've all you've memorized Genesis, right? You guys, open your eyes. We're Genesis. Genesis, these are the generations of? the way the book of Genesis is constructed, ten times. And why are those there? Because every time it's a link to who came before and who came after in the line that will be Messiah's line, right? Why do we have those genealogies in Matthew and Luke? Because they prove where Jesus came from, and they go back to these genealogies. And right here in Ruth, it's the same language. It takes us right back to Genesis and the line of promise God had been talking about all along. So it says, these are the generations of, and it starts with Perez. Now, Perez, we know, is the son of 
Judah. And why is that significant? Because we know the king, God's Messiah, is going to come from the tribe of Judah. So generations of Perez, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, that's our story, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So in that time, the whole progression was always meant to take us up to God's promised king, which was David. Now we'll see, I think in uh, two or three weeks from now, we'll see that there's another king before are before David, right? But David's the king we're looking for. He's the king God has promised and provided for. And Ruth shows us in part how we get there. So you got this little book of Ruth that tells this big story about God using little people, this little foreign woman from Moab, taking up residence in a little backwater town. We'll talk about this in just a minute as far as Bethlehem. So, so in the dark days of the judges... The cosmic plans of God are being intentionally advanced through a person, a little person, in a little place, and no one in the world would have known what was going on. Now, the only reason these stories have significance for us is because we know where they go. But what would those people have known in their day? They wouldn't have known any of that until after David's arrived. Little people, little places advancing God's purpose. Now, a thousand years or so, probably 1,100 years after the story of Ruth, what we're going to do on this point, and you have to keep your eyes open, your thinking hats on, we're just going to compare the story of Ruth with Jesus' incarnation story, okay? We're just going to compare the two. So when we talk about Nazareth or Galilee or Bethlehem today, the cockles of our heart warm, don't they? Because we've got these stories right in the Gospels. Oh, yes, that's where Jesus was born or that's where he grew up. Guys, do you think that was true back in the day when these things were occurring? Right? Not at all. In fact, Galilee to live up in the north of Israel around the time of Jesus' birth, those were the backwaters. It's sort of where the Jews and the Gentiles uh, met. But the important people, they weren't in the north. They were in the south. Uh, they They would have been in and around Jerusalem. And Nazareth was even worse. It's a little dusty town off the trade routes there in the north in Galilee. And do you remember what one of the first disciples' attitude towards Nazareth was when someone said, hey, we found the Messiah, and guess what? He's from Nazareth. You remember what Nathaniel says? Can anything good come from Nazareth? You've got to be kidding me. So when we hear these, these names in these places, we think, oh, yeah, those are important. That wasn't true in the day. That wasn't true when the stories were going on. So think about this. And you'd you'd see these in Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 2 and 3. We're not going to go into the references this morning. So here's the comparison, the tit and the tat, the elements of Ruth's story and the elements of Jesus and Mary and Joseph's story. Just as the life of the unknown Moabite widow Ruth was turned upside down in the plans of God, she walked into a field, she met a guy named Boaz, and suddenly her life is never the same. A little teenage girl, we would call her Mary, her life got turned upside down one day, right? She got up, it's another day like any other day, and an angel appears and says, God's got a mission for you. And who is Mary? She's just a little teenage girl in a dusty little town in the north there in Nazareth. 
And in that little town in Nazareth, there's an older man named Joseph, probably quite a bit like Boaz. He's a simple carpenter. He's told his much younger fiance would have a baby that wasn't his, that was in fact God's son. And think about this again for just a second. So when Boaz has Obed, he's officially raising someone else's son, isn't he? Because according to the law, he's Malon's descendant and Elimelech's. Now, Scripture will credit both of them with this, but this is the point. So who is Joseph raising? He's raising a son that's not really his too. Both cases, tit for tat, the, the first story and the second, you see that the father is actually a secondary figure. The human father is the secondary figure. Just as it was loyal love that caused Ruth to cling to Naomi and then Boaz to take Ruth, and the Hebrew term kesed, or loyal love, in Ruth is one of the key terms and one of the key thoughts along with this whole, whole notion of redemption. Uh, Joseph plays the role of redeemer through loyal love in his story with Mary. You remember the angel shows up and says, don't be afraid to take her. Joseph's a kind guy, by the way, right? He knows she's pregnant. And he knows he's not the father. And he doesn't want to see her harm, so he says he'll divorce her quietly. But the angel says, you don't need to do that. You, you need to marry this gal. Ruth carried the stigma of being a foreigner as a Moabite in the land of Judah. And remember, this comes up in John's Gospel, but Mary carried a stigma too. Do you remember what it is? That she had a rushed wedding. And the time frame between her wedding to Joseph and her delivery of Jesus was short. Are you with me? You know, Kathy and I had a September wedding planned. We got married in July. Mike thinks nothing of it. Kathy tells me this was like five years ago. She says, I'm so glad Rachel is full term. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, our mothers were counting the days on the calendar. <laughs> I thought, you're kidding. It had never dawned on me. We had a May baby. We think we got pregnant on our honeymoon. But it's like that had never dawned on me. It had dawned on my wife. And guess what? Anybody who's looking at that calendar, they know. We don't have nine months between your wedding and this baby's birth. And that comes up. It's a slam. It's a slight in Jesus' life later in the Gospel of John. Um, you've also got um, Bethlehem, that other story that's famous for us today, so Ruth's story, we know that whole thing's taken place once they come out of the land of Moab. It's taking place in and around Bethlehem right now. We know in Mary's story, that's up in Nazareth in the north. But then, of course, Jesus doesn't get born up there, does he? Because God's working through the rulers of the Roman Empire. They get shuttled down south to the place where Joseph is from. And lo and behold, Jesus gets born in the same place that David had been born, that Obed had been born in. Now, again, Bethlehem to us, it's a big thing. It's a tourist thing, right? Ever since Jesus' birth. What was it, though, back in the day? You remember what Micah 5.2 says? It prophesied that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Ephrathah. But do you remember the description there, what Micah says? It's too little to even be numbered among the clans of Judah. It's a little burg south of Jerusalem. It's an insignificant small place. But that's where Messiah would be born. And it's interesting, too. You guys know uh, Bet 
lahem or lachem means the house of bread. Jesus comes and he says, I'm the bread of life, and he is born in the town or the house of bread, just like Obed was. Remember, it was Naomi and Ruth had come back just so they would have bread. They get bread in the house of bread. The stories of the birth of Obed, uh, Ruth's son and Jesus, Mary's son, revolve around the women in these stories. And you might say, duh, that's a given. But it's for more than simply they, they conceived and they carried the babies, isn't it? So the stories revolve around Mary, in Luke especially. And Ruth's story, her, her, that book carries her name. It revolves around her. And that's not for no purpose either, is it? Because when God gave that first promise in Genesis 3.15, he didn't say Adam's descendant, did he? He didn't say the second Adam's son or the second Adam. But he said the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. So in both of these stories, the boys are directly connected. The story centers about the son of the woman as much as it does who their father was. Now, of course, Jesus is fully human. Mary gives him his full humanity, but he has no human father. So to call him the seed of the woman is particularly apt, just as God was inferring in Genesis 3. Also, like the days of the judges, these days in the land of promise were difficult. You remember the judges, they're always being oppressed by one of the nations around them. And what's going on in the time when Jesus is born? They're, they're, they're under the total hegemony or rule of the Romans, right? The Roman Empire calls all the shots there. You remember we saw that the priesthood was, was absolutely sold out in the days of the judges? What was the priesthood like in the times when Jesus came along? This isn't necessarily common knowledge, but you remember a high priest was appointed for his lifetime. But guys, once you get into the Maccabean period, 100 to 200 B.C., what you find is there's multiple high priests at the same time. It became a political office. And there was a lot of money to be made. If you controlled the temple, you had a cash cow. You had a lot of money available. You would be wealthy if you were the high priest or connected to the high priest's family. So in these days, it was the Romans that appointed the high priest. And they would mix and match as they saw fit. So if the high priest didn't do those things that suited their purposes, they didn't remain high priest. So in John's Gospel, again, you see that there's more than one high priest alive at the same time, Caiaphas and Annas. It was for that reason. The priesthood had sold out. It was a political position. So in the days, in both of these key stories, God, you see, is quietly at work in unnoticed ways and lives to bring about his plans and Messiah's coming. No one knew what was going on when these things were occurring. God used the weak things of the world, the despised, the little, and the rejected to bring about King David's birth, and then later, of course, Jesus' birth. Now, if in the grand plan, no one saw this at the time, right? We just know... God's quietly moving. We have hindsight. If God used that little Moabite woman in a, in a town too, too small even to be talked about as a member of the clan of Judah, little people in little places in his grand plan, do you think there's any chance God's willing to use people like you or me in a backwater place like Topeka? or other little people in other little places. And we're talking here little, right, 
as the world counts it, again, as the world counts significance, you and I may not have a shot. But if God's willing to use little people in little places, then all of us have the opportunity to be a part of what he's doing. Now, Jesus has come. He's going to come again. But until he does, God's still quietly, often behind the scenes, working out his will, usually in unseen people and unseen places. But that's the way he does. You remember he says this, which epistle is it? It's basically so that he gets the glory, isn't it? It's not about you and... It's not that we're so great. It's not that we're so gifted. It's not that we've got it all together. And God says, you're such a great person. You're in such a big place that I'm going to use you. But it's, no, you're insignificant. You're weak. You don't have any claims on anything. So you're just the right kind of person for me to use. So we can boast in our weakness because we know that God uses little people in little places. Now, I'm winding down and just talking about the application for us on this, guys. The whole theme about loyal love in the cause of redemption is where both of these stories uh, begin and end. Loyal love in the cause of redemption. You see it in Ruth and Boaz's story. You see it in Joseph and Mary's story. Uh, Twenty-three times in the book of Ruth, a variation of the term for redeem is used. Um, the kinsman redeemer, uh, some variation of that is used. You've got loyal love and the cause of redemption is the, are the two key themes in that book of Ruth. And it's the whole reason, of course, for Jesus coming to us in the first place. God owed us nothing but judgment when he sent Jesus. That was God's loyal love for us. His loyal love for us sent us a redeemer. So you've got a study sheet there. I hope you do. And this is a little application point for you. You know, Jesus uh, said in Matthew 24, he said, in the time of the end, the love of many will grow cold. The closer we get to the second coming, Jesus says, love won't be common. It'll be uncommon. The love of many will grow cold. And yet, what did he say would be typical of his followers and his disciples, John's gospel? He said, they'll know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. They'll know you're mine by the love you have. Listen, in a world in which love becomes the exception, not the rule. Now, whether we use the term love singularly or loyal love or faithful love, we're talking about the same thing. So does God's kind of loyal love that those stories hinged on, remember little people in little places, they don't know what's at stake, is that operating in your life and mine? No matter who we think we're interacting with, no matter how insignificant we think our place is, are those the things to which we are given? Loyal love when no one's looking. The willingness to be involved in God's work of redemption in the lives of someone else. Are we willing to extend ourselves for the sake of someone else? Outside your immediate family, who knows you're committed to them on your study sheet? Is there anyone that knows? They can call you whenever they need to because they have a need. And they might not have someone else, but they know they can count on you. I'm not saying are you committed to someone in that way. I'm asking does someone else know you're committed outside your family? Most of us are pretty good about taking care of our family, and that's not what I'm talking about. Outside 
your family, your family of origin, your nuclear family, does anyone know you're there for them? They can count on you. They need a place to stay. They need help. They need someone to pray for them. Does anyone know that you are committed to them in the bonds of loyal love? Uh, How about this? Do we take offense against others easily? Remember, God's plan of redemption is all about him forgiving us our sins, which are many. Are we characterized by holding the sins of others against them? Or is love at work in and through us in such a way that love in us is covering a multitude of sins? We all sin in a variety of ways, James says. Forgiveness is a constant necessity in the life of a Christian. Or we just become brittle and small-minded and angry people. Are we quick to, to forgive or do we become embittered over time? Do we cover sins when possible? Are we intentionally, prayerfully part of connecting others with the God who saves us? And I want to be careful about the way we communicate this. Are we looking for the conversations God gives us to speak to others about Christ? Now, guys, sometimes this is sharing the gospel. It's asking some question about, if you died, where would you go and why? It's, it's point blank and it's blunt, or what's your view of Jesus, or What's your hope? What's your view of life after death? That's fine. It's not always that. You know, we're meant to be an aroma of Christ as well. Some of the conversations God calls us to, it's not the ABCs of the gospel, but it's still representing him. So simply, are we open to those conversations God means for us to be in the lives of others? Are we willing in loyal love to God and to those others to be part of the connecting links of redemption God has in mind for them. Is that part of what we're doing? Uh, the, the phrase on the front end of uh, this, uh, this message had a quote from Schaefer, and, and this is a, a variation of it. He said, To be wholly committed to God in the place where God wants him, this is the creature glorified. Those who think of themselves as little people in little places, if committed to Christ and living under his lordship in the whole of life, may by God's grace change the flow of our generation. See, Schaefer got it. Whether it's the story of Ruth or other passages in the scripture, he got it. You don't have to be a big important person to be important in God's plans. And you never know where an act of love or a willingness to participate in God's plan of redemption, you never know where those things will go. We don't measure faithfulness by our ability to see and measure. That's a mistake. God worked through little people in little places to bring in King David. He did the same thing when he brought in the Messiah. Now, we want to make sure we are not Jesus, right? We're not the Savior. But, but, And by the way, if you don't know Christ, you know, so how do we, we get saved? We're the needy ones, right? We're the needy ones. So we're the ones that need redemption. We're not handing out redemption. We need it. And God has provided that in Christ. We accept that as a gift. We can't purchase. We can't earn, right? We simply accept that as a gift. God has paid for us through Christ. We accept the gift of salvation. Jesus did that. If we're hanging out with Jesus, though, God's plan for us is that we become more like him. And our Savior is is absolutely illustrated through acts of loyal love in the cause of redemption. So if we're hanging out with Jesus, are we being more and more characterized by 
loyal love, not just in our families of origin, not just to the people for whom that's easy, for people for whom, for us for whom that is not easy. Is, is that what's coming off? Are we sharing his loyal love and the hope of redemption as those who've received both? And I say it as those who've received both. If you haven't, you can receive that same thing today, right? We simply say, God, I know I've blown it. I'm a sinner. I accept the salvation Jesus died to give me. And then we become links in those same redemptive chains that he's been part of all along, okay? Father, we were lost and needy. We were your enemies. We were like the Moabites, Lord, worshiping false gods, consuming life, taking life. Father, thanks that you reached down in love through Christ to the neediest, to the worst. Paul said you saved him to show everyone that you'd saved the very worst among us. Lord, thanks for reaching out in your faithful, condescending, crazy, loyal love to bring about redemption for us. And Father, would you help us to be marked out as Jesus' own because of the faithful, loyal love we're characterized by, broken up as it may be, imperfectly, Lord. We want to be a part of your redeeming work in the time and the place you've set us. We offer ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.